Okay, we are in Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs 13. And we'll read the chapter, but we'll pick up in verse 13 today. Proverbs 13, verse 1. says, A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. There is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. A wicked messenger falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Desire realized is sweet to the soul. But it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would again open, Lord, up, Lord, the word of life to us, and that, Father, you might grant to us Lord, even greater faith, Lord, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, both his person, his life, his work, Lord, that as we read here in Proverbs, Lord, describing to us the very life of Christ, Lord, the life that you are forming within us, Lord, may we be reminded that, that, Lord, the end of our salvation is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And that that conformity is beginning even now in this life, as you are sanctifying us day by day. So, Father, we pray that Christ would be formed within us, and that through your word, Lord, you might remove that which does not conform to Christ. And, Lord, whatever that is in us does conform, we pray that you would strengthen it and that it would grow. And, Lord, that it would have more and more influence in our life. So, Lord, teach us today by your spirit, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are in Proverbs 13, and last week we made it down through verse 12. 
So we'll pick up in verse 13 this afternoon. Verse 13 says, The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Here, the one who despises the word of God will ultimately be in debt to it. He despises it, therefore he does not heed it. He does not listen to it. Whatever the word tells him to believe, he does not believe. Whatever it commands him to do, he does not do. Right? He does not have any desire or uh, adherence, respect, honor for the word of God. He despises it, and then ultimately he will be in debt to it because his many sins... And his sins, in one way or another, always touch some part of the Word of God, right? Every sin that a man commits, in one way or another, it touches an aspect of doctrine, an aspect of obedience, some part of the Word of God. And wherever that infraction is, there that man is indebted to the Word of God. Because the Word of God not only gives to us the commandments or what it is that we are to do, it also gives to us the punishment for transgressions. And we will be indebted to those if we despise the word of God. But the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Not only is there the punishment for the transgressor, but there's also the reward, the blessing for those who listen to the word of God, who adhere to the word of God, who believe the word of God, who obey the word of God. That one who fears the commandment. He knows that it comes from God. He believes the promises for good. He also believes the threats for punishment. He has the fear of God, and he wants his life to conform to the word of God. He will be rewarded. He will receive the blessing from the Lord. Blessing both in this life, but ultimately the blessing in the life to come. Because the one who fears God is the one who has salvation, right? He has had his sins forgiven through Jesus Christ, because he fears and he's come to a right understanding of who God is, the righteousness of God, God as a righteous judge, his own sin and depravity in the way that he has committed many sins against God and the judgment of God against those sins and the only way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He fears the commandments of God and so he will be rewarded, right? Not on the basis of his own obedience, of course not but on the basis of Christ and what Christ has done for him. We are to fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 to 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 touches on both of these. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. <clears throat> but beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. There, every act will be brought to judgment. Everything hidden will be brought to light on the day of judgment, whether for good or for evil. That's the same as we read earlier from Romans 2, 1 through 11. Every deed will be brought to light on the day of Christ. Those who despise the word of God 
will be indebted to it. The debt of sin, they will have to pay. They will have to pay it on their own, not through Christ. And the debt that they owe is eternal damnation in the lake of fire for all eternity. The one who fears, in here fearing God, is the same as believing in Christ, right? To fear God is to believe in the only way of salvation, to have your sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. Well, is there a reward for those who put their faith in Christ? And what is that reward but eternal life? This is the way it will be for each one. 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning aside from the snares of death. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. Here, the wise can be none other than those who know the word of God, those who know and believe the word of God, and who have formed their mind to the teaching of Scripture. This is the teaching of the wise. It is the wisdom of God found in the word of God that makes one wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that teaching is a fountain of life because when we are teaching people what the word of God says, are we not teaching dead men how they can have life, how they can be reconciled to God, how they can have their sins forgiven through Jesus Christ? It is a fountain of life that we are calling people to come to, to come and drink from the waters of eternal life, to have their sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. This is the teaching of the wise. It is the fountain of life and turns people away from the snares of death. Instead of dying and perishing in your sins, why not partake of the fountain of life for your salvation, for eternal life? This is what the Word of God is chiefly dealing with. Issues of eternal life, and issues of eternal death, how we can have our part in the tree of life, how we can drink freely of the fountains of life so that we do not perish in our sins and experience the second death, which is the lake of fire. And what is the only source of knowledge, of wisdom, where this teaching can be found? It's only in the word of God, only in the word of God. And what are the wise men teaching? They're teaching the Bible. They're not depending on their own wisdom. That's what we just read in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14. He says, don't trust in other books. He says, the writing of books and in endless study is wearisome, right? Only one thing is necessary, and that's to know what's in the Bible, in the word of God, the words that are given by the one shepherd. And who is the one shepherd over the flock of God? The Lord Jesus Christ. The word of Christ gives us the wisdom necessary for salvation. In John chapter 4, this is what Jesus says to the woman at the well that she should be asking him for water, and the water that he can give her will result in eternal life. John 4 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? 
You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The water that Jesus gives, which is himself, right? He is that water. And that water springs up to eternal life. A fountain of eternal life is found in the teaching of the Bible. And the primary topic of the Bible is Jesus Christ, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet it is they who testify of me. It says in John chapter 5, verse 15. Good understanding produces favor. But the way of the treacherous is hard. Here, good understanding, a proper understanding, both in terms of what is natural and civil, right? The way that we should function and live within society, within the natural order that God has established on this earth, right? This produces favor. You have favor with other men, as well as a good understanding of divine and spiritual things, which also produces favor with both God and men. Isn't this what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 52? Speaking of Jesus, it says that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor of both God and man. Jesus had a good understanding. He knew how to conduct himself in this present world, in his life, both in relationship to God and in relationship to others and in relationship to the natural order that God had created. And as a result, He had good favor, good favor both with God and also good favor with man. But those who are treacherous, it is a hard way. The way of the treacherous is a hard way because they don't have the favor of God. So ultimately, it will be a hard way on the day of judgment. But also, if you live a treacherous life, no one else is going to like you either, right? People are not going to be on your side and you're going to have a hard life now. Isn't this true of people who have a real sour attitude, right? Who are constantly uh, causing conflict and turmoil, stirring up strife and dissension. There are people who are like that, who live a treacherous, brutal kind of life, and no one wants to be around them, right? Because they're miserable and they make everyone else miserable. So they have a very hard life. And then they usually blame that on everyone else when it's really their own fault because of the way that they live. And then it'll be hard for them on the day of judgment because when you live this type of treacherous life, it is evidence that the love of God is not within you. You have no part of God. You have no love of God within you. Therefore, they will have a very hard time on the day of judgment. 16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. A prudent man is one who acts with knowledge. A prudent man being a conscientious man, a thoughtful man, right? One who is considerate and who is able to carefully look at situations and act in the course of wisdom. He knows when to speak. He knows when to keep his mouth shut. He knows when to take a backseat, when to be humble, when it is to assert himself. He's a prudent man. He is thoughtful and considerate in the way that he conducts himself throughout his life. And this is the way that we should be. Prudent people acting with knowledge. Because of their knowledge of the word of God, the prudent man knows how to respond and act in all the various situations 
that life presents. This is like in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 when it talks about a time for everything under the sun. Right? There is a time for all of these various circumstances and various responses to what it is that we are facing. The prudent man knows what the time calls for, what the season calls for, and this is the way that we should be. And the Word of God gives us this discernment. It makes us have a discernment to know how to distinguish between good and evil and how to respond to the various situations that we face in life. But the fool, he displays folly. Whenever the fool faces these same circumstances, faces these same times and seasons of life, because he has no knowledge, but he relies on his own wisdom, which is nothing but foolishness, then whatever he does, he's always responding in the wrong way. All of his impulses, the impulses of the natural man, are always contrary to the will of God because they do not have the wisdom of God. So no matter what they face, they always respond in the wrong way. They don't respond accordingly because they have no prudence and they have no knowledge or understanding. 17. A wicked messenger falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Here, the wicked messenger falls into adversity. He does not do his errand rightly. He does not faithfully deliver the message that he was sent to deliver. Now, certainly this could apply uh, with some messenger sent by the king or by uh, some official or superior. If the messenger is wicked, he doesn't faithfully deliver it. He stops and gets drunk on the way, and he fails to take what needs to be taken to the one that needs to hear it. Or he does not accurately communicate the message that he received from his superior. Now, this can happen in this life, but ultimately, right, this happens spiritually with false teachers. False teachers are wicked messengers, and they act in this uh, evil way because they say they represent God, they claim to be ambassadors of Christ, but the message they bring is not consistent with the message of Christ, and they will ultimately fall into adversity. This is what will happen to those wicked messengers through their false teachings. But the faithful envoy brings healing. A faithful messenger will bring healing because he delivers what is necessary to the one who needs to hear it. And in terms of the teaching, the faithful are the ones who teach the word of God. And when they are faithfully teaching the word of God to the people, does that not bring healing to the souls of the people? It heals them of their spiritual diseases because he's giving to them the very message of God, the antidote for their sin, for their sickness, so it brings healing to their bodies. Malachi chapter 2 teaches this in both regards, both the false and the true. Malachi chapter 2 Verses 6 through 8. Malachi chapter 2, verse 6 says, True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. 
for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despise and abase before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. There, the faithful envoy, the faithful messenger, which is what he calls this covenant with Levi, which is the priest in the Old Testament who were the primary teachers of the Bible. They were the ones, this tribe, that was given this duty by God to be the primary teachers of the Word of God to the people. And when they are doing that faithfully, there is true instruction in their mouth, there's no unrighteousness, and the result is they turn back many from iniquity. Doesn't that bring healing to the bodies, healing to the souls of men, turning them away from iniquity? He says the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge. That's what should be on their lips, knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He is the one who speaks to men on behalf of God and tells them, thus says the Lord, this is the word of God. And when he does that faithfully, it brings healing to the people. But when he does not do it faithfully, a false messenger, right? A wicked messenger who turns aside from the way, he says that you cause people to stumble by your instruction. Instead of causing them to stand and be stable, instead of causing them to walk on the straight and narrow, you're turning them aside to other ways and you're calling, causing them to stumble. Instead of bringing healing to their souls, you're giving diseases to their souls. And what will happen to those priests, those messengers who corrupt the message? He says, you will be despised and abased. The judgment of God will come upon them. And this is what will happen to all of those who are unfaithful to the message of the gospel, who corrupt it and teach a different gospel, one that is not consistent with the word of God. Verse 18, poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Here, this can be applied both to this present life, right, to our physical well-being in this life, but also to our spiritual well-being, right? Those who reject discipline, who are untaught, who will not learn. It is true that in this present world, typically, poverty and shame will come to them. In the workplace, are they ever going to get ahead? Are they ever going to advance if they cannot receive discipline, if they cannot hear any words of instruction or correction from their superiors? They're never going to advance in any, no one will be able to work with them. So they're going to be without a job. They're going to have poverty and shame all of their days. But also in relationship to spiritual things. How are we ever going to grow spiritually? How are we ever going to be rich in faith if we do not receive discipline from the Lord? Right? And that discipline isn't just uh, you know, the testing and trials. It is certainly that. But it's also the daily instruction, like we give with our children. Yes, there are times where we discipline them with the rod when they are disobedient, but much of the discipline we do with our children is just telling them day in and day out what they need to do. And when they're complying to those things, there's no reason for it to rise to the level of the rod. It's just the daily discipline, the daily instruction that we give to our children. 
Well, if a person won't listen to God, to his word, to his instruction, he's going to be spiritually poor. He's going to be in poverty and not good spiritually poor, like Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is bad spiritual poverty. He's poor in faith. He's not rich in faith. He has no faith, and he will be covered with eternal shame. But the one who regards reproof, he will be honored. The one who listens, both in this life, to his parents, to his superiors, right there in the workplace, he's going to advance. He's going to get promotions. He will be entrusted with more responsibilities, which also come with more pay. But also, the one who listens to the instruction of God will be rich in faith. He'll be rich in godliness. He'll grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he will advance in those things. 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 8. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. It says, Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. But on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Discipline yourself, he says, for the purpose of godliness. Now, if you don't discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, then will you be godly? No, it's impossible. It's impossible to attain it without discipline. Well, if you reject all discipline, then you're going to be poor and you're going to be filled with shame in terms of godliness and faith and what is good and right in the sight of God. Verse 19, desired realized is sweet to the soul, but it is, it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. Right, Whatever we desire that is good and lawful, right? whatever we desire that is a benefit to us according to the law of God, in this life, whenever that desire is realized, it is sweet to the soul. For example, he who obtains a wife obtains a good thing. Right? The desire for a man to obtain a wife, and if that wife is a godly wife, that is a good thing. And when that desire is realized, right, whenever he actually obtains the wife, does that make his soul sour or does that make his soul sweet? Right? It is sweet to him. It's rejoicing to him. It is something that is good and delightful for him. That would be both in relationship to the blessings that God gives in this life. When those desires for good things are realized, it is sweet to our soul. But ultimately, those desires for godliness, right? for faith, for knowledge of God, for victory over sin. And then ultimately one day, when we receive our eternal inheritance, the things that we desire, we long for the coming of Christ. We desire to part from this body and to be present with the Lord. Well, when those things are realized, will we be sad about that? Will we be despondent saying, oh, I'm so, so disappointed that I'm with the Lord because there were so many more things I wanted to do on this earth? That's not going to be the case at all. No, all those things will be a distant memory to us because we will be with the Lord. And when that desire is realized, it will be sweet for us. But it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. For the righteous, that would be a desire realized. 
The righteous want to overcome sin. They want victory over sin. And whenever that victory is attained in steps in this life, it is sweetness to their soul. But for the fool, it is an abomination. There's nothing that he loathes more, that is more detestable to him than the idea of the thought that he has to give up some sin that he cherishes. His lust rule over him, and he cannot imagine living life without his lust, without his sin, without those things that he craves and that he longs for. This just shows you how corrupted the heart of man is and the mind of man is in our natural state, that giving up sin is an abomination to a wicked man. The very thing that will end him in the lake of fire, eternal death, he cannot imagine living life without his sin. It is an abomination for him to have to do such things, to part from sin. May that not be true of us. Verse 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. He who walks with wise men will be wise. We want to find wise men, wise women, and walk with them. Meaning, we want to converse with them, talk with them, receive instruction from them, be discipled by them. Right? We want to walk with those wise men because if we spend our time with wise men, they're going to rub off on us. Right? And we're going to gain wisdom from them, right? And that's what we want. We want to be wise in the sight of God. And we know that one of the means God uses to make us wise is being with other wise men and wise women. This is why in Titus, he tells the older women to train the younger women. The older women have attained maturity. Now, this is assuming that the older women are mature, that they are themselves walking in wisdom and that they have learned over the course of life how to live a wise life. Well, if they have attained that, then the younger women, what should they do? They should look to their elders, to their superiors, to these older women, and the older women should be teaching them how to love their husbands, how to love their children, how to manage their household, how to live a godly life, right? how to not give themselves to sins that are common for young women. The older women are going to help them, and likewise, the older men are going to be able to help the younger men in this way. So whoever is wise among us, that's who we need to attach ourselves to so that we are growing in wisdom with one another. And this is why we need to be in the body of Christ, in the church, in constant communion and fellowship with one another, because one of the means that God uses to make us wise is each other. It is each other and walking with the wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. If we spend our time with fools, then we will suffer harm. We'll become like them. They won't become like us. We will become like them. The companion of fools will suffer harm. And there are many people who think that they are mature. They think that they are wise. And they believe that they can spend many hours with fools and that it's not going to impact them. It's not going to impact their Christian life, but it's not true. Now, again, there are some times when it's impossible to avoid it, such as the workplace or sometimes within the family. 
and there are certain responsibilities that we have to do, that we have to be faithful to, and it's impossible for us to not be around fools in some degree or another. If you go to Walmart, you're going to be around probably a lot of foolish people. But we can't let them rub off on us. We can't have them as our companions. It's one thing to have them as our acquaintance, to have to work with them, to have to be in that way. But to have them as our close companion, then eventually we're going to suffer harm because of the bad influence that comes through them. Psalm 101, Psalm 101 verse 6. This will speak to the wise man, the companion of the wise man. Psalm 101, verse 6. says, My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. So he's looking to the faithful of the land. Those who are righteous... That's who he wants to dwell with. He wants to have them as his companions. The blameless one, that's who's going to minister to me. That's the one that I want counseling me, giving me wisdom. Not this fool, why would I want to listen to him? But the faithful, that's the one that I want to be around. Then also 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33. says, bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. If our companions are fools, their bad company will corrupt our good morals. And so we must be very careful about this, especially with our children. We have to be extremely careful with our children because they are very impressionable at a young age. Now, again, we need to be cautious even as we get older But especially when children are tender, when they're moldable, when they're impressionable, we don't want them being with a companion of fools. Otherwise, those fools are going to rub off on them, right? And they're going to teach them many bad things. I learned many bad things at school from my companions, from my companions, things that my mom and dad would never teach me. And yet, those things were taught through friends, through companions. So we must watch over them and make sure that they're not associating with the wrong sort of people. 21 says, Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. Adversity pursues sinners. Right, Wherever the sinner is, the adversity of God will be after him. It will come upon him because there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. They will have adversity. They will not have peace. And ultimately, the judgment of God will come upon them. But the righteous are going to be rewarded with prosperity. Just as adversity follows the wicked, so prosperity follows the righteous. And this prosperity doesn't mean, uh, it can mean prosperity in this life. But ultimately, it has to mean spiritual prosperity, right? That is a promise and a guarantee from God. As it says in Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely, he says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The prosperity is the goodness and mercy of God, which follows the righteous. They will be with me all the days of my life. And then, after this life, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the prosperity that we should desire. 
not the adversity of the sinners. 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. The good man, he leaves an inheritance to his children's children. The righteous man is able, because he is faithful, because he is wise in his dealings with his use of money, he is able to, over the course of his life, store up an inheritance. And this inheritance is so great that not only can he leave something to his children, but even to his children's children, even to his grandchildren. And this can be both in relationship to his possessions that God has graciously granted to him in this life, but what is the best inheritance that a father can leave to his children's children? Is it not the inheritance of faith, of godliness, a testimony of righteous living, and a testimony of the goodness of God? That's the inheritance that we should want to leave to our children and our children's children. An inheritance, a heritage of faith, of godliness, of trusting in the Lord and pointing them to the things of God. Well, both of those will be accomplished in the life of the righteous. But the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous, right? The wealth of the righteous man is for himself and his children and his grandchildren. But the wealth of the sinner, whatever he has, God is going to take it away from him and he's going to ultimately give it to the righteous man, right? And this happens in many ways in the Bible. Wasn't the wealth of Egypt transferred to the Israelites when they plundered the Egyptians? Didn't we sing about that this morning in Psalm 136? The lands of Og and Sihon were not their lands, and all of their towns and villages and houses, their fields, their vineyards, their cattle, were not all those things given to the children of Israel? They took and they dispossessed them, and then they took it as their own. The wealth that they stored up was for another, right? For the children of Israel. And the same with the land of Canaan. All of their wealth was transferred from them to the descendants of Abraham, to the children of Israel. What about Esther chapter 8, verse 1? The house of Haman. What happened to that house of Haman? Who was it given to? It was given to Esther, and then she put Mordecai over that house. All that Haman had acquired, all of the wealth and treasures that he had obtained... God gave all of that to his mortal enemy, Mordecai, the one that he hated more than anyone else. So all of his work and diligence was not for his own children or his children's children. It was for Mordecai and for Mordecai's children and Mordecai's children's children. This is what God does. The wealth of the sinner will be given to another. And who will inherit the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells? We will, right? We will inherit the earth with Christ, not the wicked. That's the, the point that he's making here. That's the point of these examples of the wicked giving what they possess to the righteous. Right? Ultimately, this will be fulfilled in the life to come when the righteous will inherit the earth and the wicked will have eternal damnation. What was theirs will be given to us. Because right now, isn't it true that in terms of proportion, the wicked own more of the world than the righteous do. I mean, they, certainly they do. And many of the most wealthy men in the world, I don't think many of them are very godly. Not many of them are true believers. Most of them are godless people. But all of their wealth will be taken from them 
And ultimately, God will give it to his children. He will give it to the righteous. Next, verse 23. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. Here, abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, right? The poor man who has but a little piece of land, a little farm, yet God has made the earth so abundant in what it can grow and what it can produce that a poor man with just a little plot of land is able to grow abundant food, so much food that he's able to provide both for his own family, but also to sell and to gain more income and, and to grow his estate in this way, right? If everything was good, right, fair, and just, there is abundant food in the ground even of the poor man. Yet, even though it is abundant, why is it that he remains poor? Because of what he says next. It is swept away by injustice. The reason the poor man cannot get ahead in life is not because, in this case, he's a lazy man, and it's not because he has a bad piece of land that is not able to produce any fruit or or any crops so that he's able to make a living. The reason he can't make a living is because of the injustice in the land that sweeps away all of his income, all of what he would have made through his hard work and diligence, the benefit he could be to his family, the benefit that he could be to future generations in storing up and growing his estate and acquiring more and more income through his diligence and hard work. All of this is swept away. All of it is canceled out because of the injustice that happens within the land. And in the land, the system is always rigged toward who? It's not rigged toward the poor people. It always favors the rich. It favors them, and they are able to take advantage of and oppress the poor so that what would have been for the benefit of the poor becomes for the benefit of the rich. They're the ones that control the markets so that the poor has to sell his goods at an unfair, at a discount rate. He makes no money, and then the rich man who is able to store all that up, then jacks up the prices, and then he's the one that makes all of the money. This is actually going on in America right now, in America, because the farmers, the ones, the local farmers, you can barely squeak out any living, right? If you want to have a farm, if you want to run cattle, if you want to uh, grow crops, there's no money to be made in that, even though there should be. You should be able to sustain a family and have a decent income through farming and and ranching and doing those kinds of things. But as it is today, the injustice of the land makes it impossible for them to to get ahead in this, for them to make a living. Actually, there's a good example of this right here in our own counties. Meeker, Meeker, Oklahoma, and Lincoln County was the second largest dairy-producing county in the United States of America at one time only behind a county in Wisconsin or up there in the, the, that area where they have a lot of uh, dairies. And if you go and drive around, you'll see these grain silos all over the place out. And there were many of these dairies and many of these family-owned farms that had for generations had milk cows and produced milk and sold it and were able to raise their family and make a decent living for their household. And what ended up happening? 
all of them went out of business because the laws changed in the land against the private small farmer in favor of the corporate farms, the corporate producers, who then undercut all of the prices and put everyone else out of business so that they now have a monopoly. And this all came about through injustice because they have the lobbyists, they have the lawyers, they give money to, and donations to the campaigns of various senators and representatives who then pass laws to favor these corporations over the small private individual farmer and ends up that their abundant food is swept away by injustice. And this happens over and over and over and over again throughout human history. And it will continue to be that way for the remainder of time. We should pray and work against this, right? It is an injustice. It is a form of theft when these types of things happen. And it was happening here, and it continues to happen in our own day. And many of the prophets, if you read them, they are speaking, denouncing the people for their false weights, their false measures, the markets, the way things are manipulated and rigged against the commoner, against the poor people, oppressing them and benefiting the rich. And we should not want it to be one way or the other. It should not favor the rich. It should not favor the poor. It should be a fair and an equal system to where everyone is benefiting and everyone is getting what they deserve according to the will of God. Verse 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The one who withholds the rod hates the son. And this is the rod of discipline. The rod of discipline that the father or the mother applies to the backside, right, of the child. That's why God gave us the, the, uh, the backside, right? It's, there's plenty of fat there so that you're not going to hurt them, right? And it's made not only for sitting but also for spanking, right? And this is what needs to happen to the son, right, to the child, because folly is bound up in the heart of the child, and it is the rod of discipline that drives it away. They have to be disciplined in order to know how to live and what it is that they should and they should not do. And the one who withholds that discipline hates his son, right? Now, the reason they'll say that they, they I could never spank my child. I could never discipline them like that. I just love them too much. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Amen. The Bible says you don't love them. You actually hate them because withholding that discipline from them is going to ruin their character and ultimately ruin their soul. Because if they will not come under the discipline of their parents, who else are they not going to come under the discipline of? They won't come under the discipline of God. If you can't love your brother who you see, how can you love God who you don't see? If you won't listen to the discipline of your father and mother who you see... How will you listen to the discipline of God who you do not see? This is the way it works. God teaches us in stages, the lesser to the greater, the visible and physical to the spiritual and the invisible. And it is the parents who teach children how to submit to authority. And one of the means used to do this is rewards and punishments. And the punishment is the rod, the rod of discipline, which does not show a hatred toward children, but actually, love. Love. The one who loves his son disciplines him diligently. Diligently. Now, he doesn't mean 
overbearingly. He doesn't mean nitpicking every little fault and thing that he has. He doesn't do that. Right? In many times, our discipline, it is both praising what is good and punishing what is evil. That's according to Romans chapter 13. This is what the governing authorities are to do. Reward the good and punish the evil. And most of the time, if our children are obedient, it will be praising them, rewarding them, thanking them for doing what they're supposed to do. Right? That is part of discipline. Diligent discipline is praising and rewarding the good, but also punishing what we see that is evil and wrong. And it has to be done diligently, meaning consistently and faithfully. Not hot and cold, but consistent discipline, consistent expectations, right? Not big talk, as some people do, but we have to actually follow through with it. And if we do that consistently, the children will learn what are the boundaries, what are the parameters, what they should do, and then everyone will be happy. It won't be misery all the time in the household. And if people will do this early on when the children are little, then by the time they're three, four, five years old, you hardly ever have to spank them anymore because they know what they're supposed to do and they just do it, right? And this is what we should do. And then the house, the home is much happier. The family is more happy and it creates an environment that is conducive to the salvation of the children, right? That's ultimately what we're dealing with here, right? It is creating a culture and environment in the home that is conducive to salvation, salvation. And this is, again, one of the means God uses. We might say, well, God will save whomever he will save. Yes, it is true. God will save all of his elect, but he saves us through means. He uses secondary means in order to bring this about. And one of those is the faithful instruction of the parents, which cannot be accomplished without diligent discipline of the children. Okay, a couple of examples. First, 1 Kings 1. 1 Kings 1, 5 and 6. 1 Kings 1, verses 5 and 6. And this was one of the failures of David, at least in relationship to Adonijah, his son. It says in 1 Kings 1, 5. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking him, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. Here, Adonijah, this son of David, it says that his father had never crossed him at any time by asking him, why have you done so? How can you faithfully, diligently discipline your child if you never cross him? If you never say to him, what are you doing? Right? What were you thinking? Right? Why would you do that? Why would you think it's a good idea to leave your shoes outside for the dogs to chew up? Right? You have to say these kinds of things to your children. Why would you want to do the things that you've done? Well, he's never done that at any time, but now... Because he didn't do it in the small things, now we're talking about an issue that has the potential to lead to insurrection, to civil war in the nation of Israel. Because Solomon has already been declared to be the future king, not Adonijah. But here he is exalting himself, and he doesn't think that he will be reprimanded because he's never been reprimanded for anything. He just does whatever he wants to do, 
and there's not any repercussions. Now it's going to have very serious grave consequences if it were not for God intervening and David using his wisdom and and, uh, Solomon and Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet as well in the way that it was kept from rising to this great level. Also, we know in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 12 to 14, Eli's sons, he did not stop them from committing their sins either. And whenever they are sinning in such grave ways as adults, you don't arrive to that overnight. That manner of behavior is a pattern that is developed whenever you're a child because of a lack of diligent discipline with the children. So if we hate the child, you do not give them the rod. But if you love the child, then you will do so. You will give them the rod for their benefit and for their soul. And is it not true that God disciplines his sons? And if we want to be like God, then we need to discipline ours as well. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. Discipline while there is hope. He says, 22, 22, verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. 23, 13. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. So this is a matter of eternal life and eternal death, according to that verse. If you... Discipline him, you will save him from hell, he says. This is what is on the line. So we must be diligent to do these things. And I will have to say that one of my great, uh, many stupid things I said as a child to my parents, when I have kids one day, I'll never spank my kids. Well, I learned that yes, I will spank them because, you know, you just learn. And, And now you look back as an adult and I thank God that I had parents who were diligent to discipline me. They probably should have been more diligent. There were many things they could have spanked me for uh, that I probably got away with. I, I needed more than what I got. But I am very grateful that they were diligent to do so. Because you see the result, what happens as a result of those things. And in the same way, we are glad that we have done that with our own children as well. 25 says, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. Here again, ultimately, we have to be dealing with spiritual realities. And the righteous, he has enough to satisfy. Because doesn't Christ satisfy our souls? Isn't he all that we need for life and godliness? It's all found in Christ. There's nothing that is lacking It is a full banquet. We eat till we are completely satisfied of Christ and it brings nourishment to our souls. But the stomach of the wicked is always in need. They fill their stomach with that which does not satisfy, with that which cannot produce any life, that does no good for them. So no matter what they fill themselves with, they're always in need because there's only one thing that can satisfy the soul of men. And that is the blood of Christ. Only Jesus Christ, his person, his life, his work, only that can give salvation to sinners. And no matter where a man looks in this life 
to find salvation, to find hope, to find peace, whatever it is that he's looking for, he will always be in need, he will always be craving and never satisfying himself so long as he looks other, in any place other than Jesus Christ. He is the only way that we can have satisfaction to our souls. John chapter 6, 26 to 35 says, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said, What shall we do so that we may uh, work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe me. He is the bread of life. And if we come to him, we will hunger no more. Because he satisfies the souls of men by giving to us eternal life. That is what we should look to. We should look to Christ and to no other. So with that, let us then fix our hope, fix our eyes squarely upon Jesus Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God, so let us keep our eyes fixed on on him, and then let us press on in this present life, always going to Christ in order to be satisfied. And as long as we are doing that, we'll never be disappointed. We will always be filled to the full, only through Jesus Christ. But when we forsake Christ and we cling to worthless idols, we will always be in need. We will always be in want. So let us not do that, but rather shall we look to Christ. Well, let's pray. And before we do, I did want to mention that we need to pray for Brandon and Gabby uh, Smith. Their house was more in line with that storm that came through on Wednesday night. And they, they had some damage to their home, to their roof. Uh, the siding was torn off. Their air conditioner was in their neighbor's yard. Their shed is gone, uh, so it, it's nowhere to be found. And they're still without electricity. So they've been without, and they're, they're up in Tulsa right now with staying with some friends and family there uh, while they're waiting for their electricity to get back on. So we want to pray for them, just that uh, everything would be taken care of. He's already met with the insurance adjuster, and things seem to be progressing there, and, and hopefully they will uh, fix everything that needs to be fixed, and they'll be able to get back to their life as normal. But also, thank God for protecting them, and then many of us as well, because uh, many of us were in that same line, and we're all here today. No one uh, has a scratch on them or, or anything, so we're very grateful for God's provision there. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time to meet together today, Lord, to worship you, to gather with your people, Lord, to open up the very words of life. Lord, we thank you that 
Jesus is the bread of heaven who has come down to give life to the world. And that, Lord, if we eat of him, we will never hunger again, but we will always be satisfied. So, Father, we pray that more than anything else, Lord, our great desire in this life would be to partake of Jesus Christ, Lord, to feast upon the bread of heaven, Lord, to drink the blood of Christ, Lord, to drink it in our soul, Lord, so that we have eternal life and that all of our sins are forgiven. Lord, may we always remember that our salvation from start to finish, Lord, it is not based upon our works, anything that we do. Lord, even as Christians, Lord, it is not the righteousness that you are producing in us, Lord, that is the basis of our salvation, but only the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything that we need has been provided by you in him. And so we pray that we would look to him as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And just as Christ was able to endure and he pressed on, he entrusted his soul to him who judges justly. So, Lord, we commit our souls to you, Lord, knowing that, Lord, you are able to save to the uttermost those who believe in Christ. So, Lord, we give our life to you and we pray that whatever, Lord, is necessary according to your will and your wisdom, Lord, for our sanctification, for our salvation, for our eternal good, Lord, we pray that you would, in your providential care, Lord, bring those things upon us, whether that be for our good or for our evil. Lord, as you are the one who knows better than anyone else how to train us and discipline us for godliness. Lord, help us to be faithful to you in all things. Lord, to walk with you or to do those things that are pleasing and right in your sight. Father, as well, we pray for Brandon and Gabby and the boys. Lord, we thank you that you were with them on Wednesday night. Lord, that you kept them safe and that they were not harmed in any way, shape, or form. Lord, as they've been displaced here for the last week, Lord, we do pray that you would be with them and comfort them. Lord, we ask that their electricity would come back on and that they might be able to, to come back home and resume their normal life. Lord, we ask that everything would go smoothly with their insurance carriers and that uh, everything might be fixed on their home in a timely manner and that they might return back to their normal manner of life. So, Lord, be with them and bless them. And we thank you as well, Lord, for protecting uh, all of those in our congregation and, Lord, even all of those in Shawnee, Lord, that there were, uh, Lord, no serious or, or major injuries, at least not that I know of, but only the damage to the, to the buildings and to the homes. And, Father, we pray that uh, it would all be able to be cleaned up and fixed and restored and life might be able to return back to normal. But, Lord, as well, that this event might cause people to sober up, Lord, to think about their life, Lord, seeing how fragile we are. Lord, a, a simple storm can come in and upend our entire life. But Lord, what about the storm of the Lord that will come? Lord, when you come upon a man, Lord, how will they be able to endure? So, Father, we pray that this might be used to cause people to think about their eternity, their life, Lord, the need to be reconciled to you through Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you give us opportunity, Lord, to speak a good word, Lord, to be a messenger that brings a fountain of life, Lord, to those who are dead in their sins. 
Lord, be with us as we go home today. We pray that you continue to bless us this Lord's Day. And Lord, give us safety as we travel and bring us back together again on Wednesday. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.